the east. As he looked, he saw a field, a well in a field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where, do you, where are you from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob and Rachel, uh, that he was her, sorry, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you not therefore serve serve me for nothing? Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban uh, gave his female servant Zilpah uh, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve uh, with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Genesis 29, 1 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God.
Well, I want to start this morning a little bit different than we typically start a sermon. That is to share with you some things I think this passage, this story is not about. The first thing that I think this story is not about, it is not about the super strength that God gives Jacob to roll away the large stone. I don't think it's about Jacob looking at Rachel and going, Oh, I'm going to impress her and God giving him some kind of super strength so he's suddenly a stone mover. I think the reason that the passage tells us it's a large stone and all the shepherds are hanging out there is because probably one shepherd was there and he pushed the stone away, he'd water his sheep, and then he'd start pushing it back and another shepherd would show up and say, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. And then he'd have to shove it aside and then they'd shove it back and they'd finally decide, let's just all meet at the same time and move it once. So I don't think this is about Jacob's super strength that's a result of his super love for Rachel. Number two, I don't think that Jacob is a type of Christ in moving the stone away. Okay, just want to make sure we're on the same page. I don't think that Laban's kissing Jacob, his deceitful kissing of Jacob, is foreshadowing Judas, kissing Jesus and deceiving Jesus. I don't think this is a romantic love story either. Sorry. I know that when we get to the part where Jacob works seven years, but it seems like a few days, we all go, oh as if we're watching a Hallmark movie. But I don't think that's the case. It's interesting how the moment that he he does his seven years, he is only interested in one thing, and we see it in verse 21 where he says, I want her so I can come into her. And yes, that means what it means. And I want to know what's going on with Rachel in this whole story. She's silent, so it's not much of a love story. Perhaps if it is, it's one-sided. We don't know. But her silence seems to be saying something through this whole thing where she's not speaking out about about mutual love for this guy named Jacob that it seems she hardly knows. So I could be wrong here, but I think the absence of information tells us that her feelings may not be the same. Fifth thing, sadly, that I have to say, because it has crept into the church in different ways, is that this story is not promoting God's approval for men to have multiple wives. It's not. And there's plenty of places you could read and go and find out that there are places like that that claim to be Christian. So... Anyway, that's what it's not about. So what is the story about? Let's just clean that stuff up, push it to the side. I think the main point of this episode is threefold. I think it's about God's work in Jacob's world. And then it's about God's work in Jacob's, Jacob's work in Jacob's world without God. And then three, God's work in Jacob's heart. So I think that's what this passage is really about. We're going to first look at God's work in Jacob's world, then Jacob's work in Jacob's world without God, and then God's work in Jacob's heart. So let's look at the first part of this story here. Jacob's, God's work in Jacob's world. I wonder if in the first little part of the story, if you noticed all of the coincidences. Did you see all the coincidences in the first, I guess even 14 verses? It starts with, it just so happens that Jacob wanders in the direction of this specific well. It just so happens that these shepherds are there when Jacob arrives. After all, he says it's high day. They shouldn't even be there. But it just so happens that they are. And it just so happens that these shepherds are from Haran. It just so happens that they know Laban. And it just so happens that while they're all there, Rachel comes walking towards the well at the exact time that Jacob arrives. These seem like a lot of coincidences, which are meant to make the reader think that these are not coincidences. But rather, God is at work in Jacob's world. 
We just notice God arranges all these details for Jacob. And I think this is God fulfilling what he said he was going to do in the previous chapter. I mean, look back at chapter 28. I want you guys to look and see this with me. Chapter 28 in verse 13, Jacob's having this dream of God and a, and a ladder. And who is at the top of the ladder? God. It's as if he's looking down with authority, releasing angels, dispatching them the moment that they're needed for Jacob. He's in control of the whole thing. He's in charge of everything. So I think God is just fulfilling this in Jacob's life. Look, look at verse 15 of chapter 28. Behold, he says, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And this well event is one of the things that God is doing in Jacob's world to fulfill that promise. So I don't think these are any coincidences at all. God is going to do and has planned for Jacob, everything he's planned for Jacob, and God is not going to stop until he's accomplished every one of them, including this encounter. The well event is no coincidence. The well event is all God. God led Jacob to the well at high noon. God led the shepherds to the well at high noon. God led Rachel to the well at high noon. God is at work in the well at the well. God is at work in Jacob's world. And listen, God is at work in your world too. I don't know what your well is. I don't know where your well is, but God is at work at your well. God is at work in your world. There are no coincidences in your life. You work where you work, you live where you live, you shop where you shop, you restaurant where you restaurant, you meet people where you meet them, you have the experiences you have because God is at work in your world. I think there's times when things happen in my life and out of caution from not wanting to sound super spiritual, I don't attribute things to God that need to be attributed to God because the reality is, Everything that happens in my world is from the hand of God. And so I should attribute them to God. If we're, if we're Bible-believing Christians, if we believe that God's word is true, we know that God is at work in our world and that he is looking out for us and that his hand is on us. And there's plenty of places where we can see this. Isaiah 46, verses 8 to 11 is one of them. It says this, Remember this. And stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, listen to this, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's not just generic on the earth. That's in your life. He will accomplish his purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Who is in sovereign control of your life? God. There are no coincidences. I love Proverbs 19, 21. I've used that verse in Proverbs 16 many times. I was making major decisions in my life and fearing that I'd make the wrong call. Gripped with anxiety, seeking God and having to make choices. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man. And that's good. Make your plans. 
but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Oh, that's good news. Because I don't trust myself. So that's good news. Proverbs 16.9 tells us, The heart of a man plans his way. And that's good. Plan your way. Seek God. Plan your way. But ultimately, the Lord is the one who establishes your steps. So don't miss it. God is at work in your world. One other thing I think we are supposed to notice from this well encounter is how it parallels another well encounter that happened previously in Genesis. You guys remember the other one? Tyler preached on that. Genesis 24. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant to go find a wife for Isaac. And there he meets up with Rebecca. Do you remember that story? It's filled with more coincidences. God is at work. And these stories parallel one one another beautifully, so much that as we read this story, we probably should be thinking back to the other story. After all, this is a father-son story, isn't it? It's how a father came about with his wife, and now his son is having the exact same experience. Another well encounter where he finds his bride. In this story, the servant just so happened to go to a well in the passage from chapter 24. Rebecca just so happened to arrive at the time the well, at the, at the well, the time the servant was there, and the servant is there praying, God, let the girl who comes to me and not only offers to give me water, but to feed my camels, to give my camels water, she'll be the one. And he doesn't even finish praying. And she comes along and she says, hey, you want a drink? And I'll take care of your camels too. And then when the whole scene is over, he praises God for what took place. So listen, I think these two stories happen back to back parallel to show us the glaring thing that's missing in today's story. It's glaring what Jacob doesn't do compared to the parallel story where Abraham's servant does do something, and that is the seeking of God. It's the seeking of God. Abraham's servant is a God seeker. We see in chapter 24, verse 12. Do we have this one? We do. And he said, this is the servant. He says, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. This dude is seeking God for a wife for his master's son. And then after he finds her, after God leads them together in chapter 24, verse 26, he stops and he prays. And he says, says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Who got the credit? God. God did the leading. This unnamed servant attributes his well-finding wife experience to God. God gets the credit. God gets the glory. God gets the praise. Not so in chapter 29. Chapter 29 is godless. Jacob makes no mention of God. And I think we're supposed to have these two stories in our head so that we, the reader, are sort of shocked at the difference between the two main characters. You don't think that Jacob heard the story over and over again about how God provided a wife for his dad? You tell that story, don't you think? Especially in a society where there's no internet. I mean, you're retelling stories. 
That servant retold the story. Rebecca retold the story. The story got, got passed around. He knew this servant sought the Lord. And yet here he is in very similar circumstances, and there's no seeking, none at all. And it's supposed to rock our world that Jacob does not seek God, but God is still at work in Jacob's world. That's supposed to blow us away. He's not seeking God, but God's still at work. He's not giving God the credit, but God is still at work. He's not faithful to God, wanting God's activity in his life, but God is still active in his life. It's an amazing, amazing shocker. Despite Jacob not seeking God, God is at work in Jacob's world. Despite Jacob not depending on God, God is at work in Jacob's world. Despite Jacob being prayerless, God is at work in Jacob's world. Despite the fact that Jacob is on the run because his brother wants to kill him because he's such a deceitful snake, God is still at work in Jacob's world. You see, God's chosen children cannot stop God from working in their world. Do you believe that this morning? Listen, if my sin, my bad attitude, my lack of belief could stop God from working in my world, God would never work in my world. I'm counting on God working in my world despite my sin and my bad attitude and my selfishness and all of those things. I'm banking on it, and I love this story. Because it reminds me that God can be at work in your world, even when we're not asking for it. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's kind of him. And I think we're supposed to notice this radical difference between the two stories so that we would see how God is so loving and so faithful in his activity in Jacob's life, even when Jacob doesn't want it. Which leads into the second point, and that is Jacob's work in Jacob's world without God. I want to tease this out a little more. Because it seems that in this story, Jacob forgets God. And I think it's there to help us. I think it's there to warn us that we too can forget God. Not forget that he exists. But have a heart and a mind attitude that sort of forgets him. Now, you guys know there's no chapter breaks. So you can take, get rid of the little 29 in your Bible. It's not there. It's not inspired. And with it out there... I think you'll see more of why it's shocking that Jacob is living in his world without God. So look, look at it. Chapter 28, you remember? It's the, whole, it's the whole Jacob's ladder thing. God is active. God is present. God is working. God is doing everything. And then in 29, now that all of a sudden there's, there's no mention of God at all. It almost seems like Jacob leaves God stuck in chapter 28. Like he's stuck there. Let me, let me try to prove to you for a moment. Look at verse 17 of chapter 28. Here's Jacob's response. Actually, look at verse 16 of chapter 28. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. I remember that sermon, but it was all about Jacob really believes God is, is in a location. And I didn't know it. And I was afraid. And I said, How awesome is this place? There is no other. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So he's nailing down this location. And he says it even more strongly down in verse 22. Remember? Verse 22 to 28 is going to blend right into 29.1. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. So now he's putting a rock down and saying, this is God's house right here. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth. Then Jacob went on his journey. I think you're supposed to read that as you read what happens in the chapter. And you're like, yeah, he went on a journey without God. 
I'm leaving God at the rock in chapter 28, and now I'm moving on with my life into chapter 29. It seems that he forgets about his encounter with God. And I think God has Moses include this in the story to warn us of the potential for us to functionally forget about God. It's God's kindness. He's just warning us. I mean, how many of us haven't had an encounter with God in some way? You, your faith is strong. You, you see his presence. You know he's at work in, in your life, and you're, you're living strong and faithful. And then the next day, you live like an atheist. Now, let me take that back. How many of you, one moment, trusting God, loving God, aware of God's presence in your life, and then seconds later are filled with fear as if you were living like an atheist? It's crazy how we can go, maybe I'm talking just to me, from moments of great faith, great love for God, aware of God's presence, and then can get one piece of news or one thing can happen immediately. My mind is godless. He's not in the equation anymore. I've got all these other worldly things I'm thinking about how to fix it, but God's not there. And I think this is just a warning for us, a loving warning from God, just to say, don't forget, don't forget me. And we have so much more to be confident in. We're not banking on a ladder dream, are we? I always want to be careful not to throw some of these people under the bus. Like I said, I'm going to meet Jacob someday. And I'm going to be like, dude, man, what'd you do? Come on. That wasn't accurate at all. So I, I, want, to, I want to cautiously wait, prepare for that conversation that I'm going to have with him. And, and I want to do that by saying this about him. All he had to go on was a dream about a ladder and a very brief conversation. So I can give him a whole lot more grace, and I can even give myself. I've got the gospel. I have confidence that God is at work in my life. I have confidence that he's for me and not against me. I have confidence that God's presence is here because I've got the spirit of the living God living in me, and yet there's still times where I forget God. And so here we are in this little story where I think God just wants to whisper into all of our souls, don't forget me. Don't forget I am at work in your world. Don't miss how I am at work in your world. So don't forget him. Don't forget him. Instead, seek him and enjoy him and express your dependence on him. Train our souls to make our knee-jerk reaction to the trials and the unexpected things that happen every day to be, God, I need you. God, where are you? God, help me. Let's not live Godless, like it seems like Jacob is doing here in this story. Point number three that I see here is God's work in Jacob's heart. God's not just at work in Jacob's world. God is at work in Jacob's heart. And I think this can be rightly seen in the main point of this whole story, which is in the plot twist. Do you guys like a good movie with a plot twist? This has a horrible plot twist. This has a crazy plot twist. So let's look at it again, beginning in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant, Zilphath, to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. 
few years ago, I had a friend who had never read the Bible before. He started in Genesis. And he told me when he got to that line, he screamed out loud, No! <laughs> that is so wrong! That's horrible! Now, if you've been in church too long, we just read the story. So I feel like altogether we should also just go, No! <laughs> this, this is horrible. This is awful. You, you don't do that. You don't switch daughters out. You don't do a wife swap last minute. You, you don't do that to someone. And I think that's how it's supposed to impact us. So let's get back to maybe the first time we've read it. It's meant to hit us hard. Like, this is insane. What kind of dude does this to his daughter? You don't do this to someone who's worked seven years for someone. And so he has this encounter. He wakes up in the morning, and behold, the text says, it was Leah and Jacob, I'm sure, made a beeline for Laban's tent, maybe woke him up. I don't know. I'm surprised he didn't strangle him at that point. And he says, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Now, caution should be all in all of our hearts and minds when we make statements like, did I not do this? Then why did you do that? Right? Be cautious of that. After all I've done for you, how could you do? Or how could you do this to me after all that I've done for you? Like those are just bad places to go. And he goes there. And then Laban, Laban drops the hammer. I mean, this is a hammer on his soul, on his very existence, what he says to him. First, Jacob speaks the words that echoed, I bet, in his soul. Why then have you deceived me? Deceived me, deceived me. And I bet before he could even process, oh crap, I think I know what's happening. As he speaks the word deceived, why did you deceive me? Laban drops the hammer and says, oh, well, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. In other words, hey, Jacob, what goes around comes around. And in that moment, I think he was cut to the heart. I'm going to show you why in a minute, but that landed on him like a ton of bricks. I think for the first time, his eyes were slightly opened to how he had treated his brother and his father, stealing the birthright. I hope you see the parallels between this trickery that Laban just pulled on Jacob and how Jacob tricked Isaac because they're everywhere. Let me point them out to you. Jacob deceived Isaac when his eyes were dim so that he could not tell Jacob from Esau. So Laban, dece Laban deceives Jacob when it's dark at night so he couldn't see and tell Leah from Rachel. Jacob was deceived. Jacob deceived Isaac in his tent. Jacob was deceived in his tent. Isaac was lying down in his bed of his tent when he was deceived, and Jacob was lying down in bed in his tent when he was deceived. Isaac touched, smelled, and listened to Jacob and still thought it was Esau. Jacob touched, smelled, and listened to Leah and still thought it was Rebekah. Jacob, sorry, Rachel, dang it. Jacob, the younger brother, pretended to be the older brother, while Leah, the older sister, pretended to be the younger sister. 
I mean, the parallels go on and on. Laban deceives Jacob just like Jacob had deceived Isaac. They're parallel. And so Laban's words must have cut to his heart as he realized what he had done. And for the first time, I think he saw to some degree the pain and the hurt and the dysfunction that deceitful trickery causes a family. I think he felt it finally, firsthand. I think this is almost like his Nathan and David experience. You know, the Nathan and David thing where Nathan looks at David and goes, you are the man. This is that experience for him. This is the you are the man experience. And I think it rocked Jacob's world. But what's the point of the twist? I think this is the point of the twist. I think the point of the twist is that God is at work in Jacob's heart, setting Jacob free from the bondage of his sin, from the bondage of his deceiving. I think God is at work in Jacob's heart, setting him free from living as a deceiving, manipulating, lying trickster. That's who he was. You would not have liked to be around him, I bet, wondering what kind of scheme and scam he was going to pull on you. And so God's at work setting him free, using people, from using people to get what he wants, from hurting relationships, from sinning against others, needing to run away to save his own life. God is at work setting him free. Now, I'm not saying that he gets it fully. I don't think this was like an instantaneous, he's a new man. But it certainly began a process. Just like God does in us, right? God loves to begin processes in us to help us repent and get free from our sin and our patterns of sin. And I think that's what's happening here. It's beginning to happen. As we continue to read through Genesis, we're going to find that Laban is the constant antagonist in Jacob's life. And he's just going to be a pain in the all the way through. He is going to constantly be on him. But we're going to see Jacob transform into somebody who looks differently as we get through these different chapters. And I just want to show you one. Flip over to chapter 30. Look at chapter 30 with me, verse 33. I mean, contrast everything we know about Jacob to what Jacob says in Genesis 30, verse 33. And it's shocking. After working 20 years for Laban, and they're negotiating how Laban's going to get to, or how Jacob gets to leave because he wants to get out from underneath Laban's heavy hand. Look what he says in verse 33 of Genesis 30. So my, what's it say? Honesty. Whoa, time out, Jacob. You've been nothing even close to honest. But a lot's going to happen between chapter 29 and this verse. It seems like God is at work in Jacob's heart that he would be able to appeal to his honesty in any kind of situation at all. And then look at chapter 32, verse 10. Flip over there. These are Jacob's words to God. I mean, this is just a different man. In my opinion, this is a different man. It's a process. Genesis 32, verse 10. Here's what he says to God. I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I feel like that's a changed man. I mean, look at it again. He, he's crying out, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds. Oh wait, who's he giving credit to all of a sudden? He's giving the credit to God. And he's saying, God, it's because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I'm not worthy. This is a different man. This is a different man than the one who just got tricked by Laban. 
His heart has been changed. God is at work in his heart. And so I think Jacob begins to connect the dots with this encounter with Laban. And here Jacob sees that God is really at work in his world and that he's not worthy of it. That God is at work in his heart and that he's not worthy of it. You see, God's steadfast love and faithfulness means that God is at work in your world God is at work in your heart even when you forget God and you're not worthy of it. I think that's the point of the passage. And that's good news for us. God's steadfast love and faithfulness means that God is at work in your world this morning. God is at work in your heart this morning even when you forget God and you're not worthy of it. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you for it. It gives us such hope to see that you would love Jacob so much to set him free from his sin and to work in his world. And God, we want the same this morning. We want to have a joyful, hope-filled confidence that you are at work in our world and that you are at work in our hearts. We don't want to forget you. We don't want to live in anxiety and in fear as if you weren't on your throne. We don't want to live in fear and pain as if you were not at work in our world. God, we don't want to live in hopelessness as if you were not at work in our hearts. Help us to believe this morning that because of your steadfast love and because of your faithfulness, you are at work in our world and you are at work in our hearts. And I pray that would be a reality for us. Even this morning and this week, help us. Spirit, come and help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a minute. The band's just going to play. Give me a minute just to jot down any thoughts the Spirit has put on your heart as God's Word was preached this morning. Anything that you're thinking, God's speaking to you, just take a minute, just write it down before you forget it, and then we'll sing a song together.